Thanks for joining us tonight on this somber occasion as we remember those that we've lost on our streets here in Atlanta and under bridges and in our shelters and our transitional facilities and sadly, even in the awnings of our church. One such person was this amazing guy named Philip Bray. Many years ago, he was like this gangster, like Tony Montagna kind of gangster, right? Like that kind of gangster. And he had this transformative experience with the story of Jesus. And he came to Atlanta and he began to work with teen, teenagers who were experiencing homelessness as well as those who were sex workers. He started a little mission in downtown Atlanta called Safe House Outreach. And he had a wide influence. And we recently lost him as well. And he was in the community of those of us who live and care and work and serve on the streets of Atlanta. He influenced me. Perhaps he influenced you as well. Philip tried to live a life of transformation, one of kingdom or kingdom or, as Dr. King calls, a beloved community. He tried to live into that. And I think when we look at Matthew's gospel, we find these Beatitudes really central to this message of kingdom or kingdom or beloved community. It's good stuff. It's radical stuff, but it's good stuff. I want to live like that. I want to live according to the Beatitudes that are so transformative and really antithetical to worldly systems of domination and power over and sadly systems of injustice. I want to be radical and I want to flip the script like the prophetic tradition of Jesus. I wanted to talk quickly a little bit about the context of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. So Matthew's gospel has a very Jewish sense to it. It has a mosaic audience, people that are familiar with the story of Moses, that have been deeply entrenched and rooted in the stories of Torah. And they understand when Jesus is saying these things, they pick up on the context. It would be like you and I having a discussion, and I give little like Easter eggs to one of my favorite shows, and, I'm, and you're like, oh yeah, and I'm like, winter's coming. And you're like, oh yeah, Game of Thrones. They knew the stories. They knew the Easter eggs. They knew the context. So when he was speaking to them, he kind of came with a lot of Moses symbology. It's a little bit different than the Beatitudes that are kind of rendered in Luke's gospel. But if we think of Luke's gospel, it's really an inclusive gospel. It's sort of a gospel that heralds the story from the margins. It's a gospel of liberation and Jesus the misfit king. So Luke's gospel is a little bit tougher we see Luke's gospel really amplifying voices of justice and inclusion. And Matthew's gospel has a really Jewish sound to it, a really ring that would resonate in the ears of Jewish hearers. Part of that that they would be familiar with was Moses and Moses bringing the law. And Jesus doesn't come to challenge the law or to reinvent the law but to sort of explain it or interpret it just a little bit differently with the Beatitudes. In the Mosaic Law, you had uh, some sets of blessings as well, and perhaps you've heard of them, right? Blessed in the city, blessed in the field. Some of you have heard that song that's like, I'm blessed in the city, I'm blessed in the field, I'm blessed when I come and when I go, right? That song also came with a set of curses. 
And in Luke's narrative, we see the blessings and then the woes. And I think those are important because I think some things in our life can lead to woe. However, this should never become a sloganized or simplistic interpretation in which we see someone who is suffering as guilty of sin. And unfortunately, it had become that way. Many people thought, oh, well, if you were doing well, you must be serving God. And if you're going through rough times, somehow you had fallen off. Sort of like the story of Job of old, right? So Job's this righteous guy. A bunch of bad junk happens to him. Really bad stuff, like boils in places we don't talk about in church. That kind of bad stuff. Eventually his friends show up. Instead of listening and lamenting, and really just sitting and being present, after several days of Shiva, they speak up, and they say these things like, well, Joe, maybe you should have did this. Maybe you should have did that. You should have, you should have, you should have. And they should all over Joe. I don't know about you, but I don't like being should on. And oftentimes we take the place of Job's friends and we should on others. But Jesus comes with these blessings They kind of flip the script. I think in our American context and our sort of dominant overproduction consumeristic culture, it's easy to get back into that thinking that because someone is suffering that they must have somehow made bad decisions. But that's not what Jesus says. And that's not what scripture says. It's not what Job says. It's not what the Psalms say. It's not what Proverbs says. It's not what any of the prophets say, the prophetic tradition. It's not what Jesus says. It's not what Paul says. It's not what the author of Timothy says, who says, if you follow Christ, you're promised suffering. That's a promise of God, y'all. Let's get Pentecostal on that jazz. Come on, praise break. A joke, but suffering is a part of the life of following Christ. And we should give honor to those that are experiencing suffering. The good do suffer. And we can no longer have some sort of moralistic hierarchy within our church that is exclusionary and says somehow tied into classism and xenophobia and these other systems of evil. We can't say that anymore. Because righteousness is not about this outward purity codes. It's not about keeping up with all these things. It has a different meaning. And our moralistic hierarchies should burn in the presence of the love of God. In Matthew 5, Jesus begins to explain a little bit of the law and the prophetic tradition. And he goes on and he uses this word, which we've heard is translated as blessed or happy. But the New Testament theologian Margaret Amer, who's pretty dope, y'all, says much honor is given to. And I like this interpretation. Because Jesus is challenging the way that society thinks in his context. And though the book is written of Matthew in that context, it speaks to us today and throughout the centuries. That much honor is given to those that are experiencing these things. And what Jesus says is revolutionary. Because bless, much honor is given to the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Much honor is given to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, much honor is given to the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, 
Much honor is given to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, blessed. Much honor is given to those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed, much honor is given to those who have who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, much honor is given to the peacekeepers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed, much honor is given to those who are persecuted because of righteousness or justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, much honor is given to those when you are insulted because of me, persecuted, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's some deep stuff, some revolutionary words. Imagine if we live like this. For the sake of time, I'm not going to dive into each blessing, right, or each honor. But I do want to talk about several. Uh, in verse 5, we come upon the meek. Now, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about who the meek are. Some people say, oh, it's people that are kind or sweet or they're kind of pushovers. Um, but I don't think they're pushovers. I think that they have the power too, but they restrain in sort of a way that's, that's merciful and forgiving and humble. Like, they don't need to prove themselves. They walk in their authenticity. And they don't have to show power or drop names or do any of that kind of stuff. But they walk in this sort of merciful way. They have the power, if they wanted to, to be domineering, to be jerks, to come with violence, with accusation, with threats. But yet, they just come in humility and honor the dignity in others. And I think that's what meekness is. It's not a weakness. Meekness is no weakness. It's really strong. In verse 6, we have hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what's interesting about the Aramaic word there for righteousness is it's zedek, which in Hebrew we have zedeka or zedeka, or maybe some of my rabbi friends can better translate or fix the way that I'm pronouncing it right now. But the root word is justice or just action or right relationships in the marketplace right relationships in the scales, right relationships in the courtroom, right relationships in the countryside, right relationships to the stranger, the widow, the orphan, anyone who is on the margins. I'm treating them with equity, with justice, establishing things that will make them safer in the world. Justice. Righteousness isn't purity code holiness. I was raised Pentecostal. Some of y'all don't know about us, but uh, it was all about clothesline religion, right? Don't chew, don't drink, don't go with girls that do, don't have any tattoos, don't color your hair, don't have a bunch of crazy earrings. That was sort of like the market for holiness. But holiness isn't contained in like some outside kind of thing, right? It's, um, it's much more than that. It's holiness transform and affects the world in such a way to cause ripples of community change where suddenly situations that were violent become peaceable, where there is food for the poor and the hungry. That is a sort of holiness that the Lord, that God, that the prophets, that Jesus calls us to. It's that sort of holiness. It's not all about individual, but it is about community and in the communal setting. 
So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's when you pray. It's when you work for justice. It's when you cry for it at night. It's when you scream and curse at God in the silent hours of the night and you cry out and say, how long, O Lord God? When is your kingdom? When is your kingdom? When will this be more just? And you quake in the evening. It says, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, you will be filled. And in verse 9, we have peacemaking. And this isn't some, you know, candy, sweet shop, poppy kind of stuff. It's not a bunch of white kids that just found out about the Grateful Dead uh, around the campfire singing Kumbaya. This is being in the midst of conflict and offering a third way that points to dignity to all who are involved. It points to the inherent worth and humanity and divinity of every party. It is going to Ireland in the midst of the troubles where there are bombs and there are tanks and there are IRA and there are Catholics and there are Protestants and they're fighting and people are dying and saying, let us come together and work this out as humans. Peacemaking isn't easy stuff. It's hard stuff. It's deep stuff. It's strong stuff. It takes a lot of ovaries to be a peacemaker. It's going in the middle of Rwanda in a conflict and genocide and sitting down with Hutu Burundi people and Tutsis who were having arguments over cattle and arguments over farming and economic disputes and suddenly there becomes this rash of dominance over and the slaughtering and killing of people and saying, come, let us work together and see the divinity within each other and work through this. That's peacemaking. Peacemaking isn't for the weak. It's going to the south side of Chicago and lamenting with mothers whose children have been shot dead and then meeting with Bloods and Crips and other rival gang members and say, come, let us reconcile, let us work together, let us wrestle this out. And being in the midst and being committed to community and being committed to humans and seeing that transformation takes place. That is peacemaking. It's not weakness. It is a boldness. And then let me quickly skip to verses 11 and 12 and talk about persecution and rejection and being honored like a prophet. This is not to say that you were persecuted because you went to Starbucks and they didn't write Merry Christmas on your mocha joka Americano with soy latte, blah, 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 blah. That's not persecution. Let's just get that out of the way right there. That's basically people being upset that Christian supremacy is being challenged. But that's another story for another day. Instead, the sort of persecution or rejection is when you go up and challenge any sort of system that is trying to dehumanize individuals. It's whether you leave behind allegiances of a flag or institution or family or hierarchies or whatever because you want to work for justice and you care about people. You want to walk in the way of Jesus. When you are rejected, when people call you a heretic or anathema because you chose to work for just action with a group of people and you stood up for the righteousness of the Lord, when your family members disown you because you care about the world. When you, use, when you lose your life because you prayed and you stood up to the state militant. When your family is targeted because you did the right thing. When you are beheaded because you practice not merely lip service to Jesus, 
but you follow Jesus in radical community. Imagine, imagine all these things. What if we live blessed? What if we live with each other and we gave more honor to in our society those who lived in this radical type of way? What if we lived in this kingdom? What if we could really see Dr. King's vision of the beloved community? A world where Christian supremacy, white supremacy, male supremacy, every system of evil burned up in the face of God's justice. And that fire of justice is burning us now. All throughout this time of COVID and isolation, you felt stirrings deep within your spirit about God's justice and God's judgment and the fire of baptism coming upon you. And I pray that we let that stir within our souls and within our churches to reinvigorate us towards a revival of just action in which we care about the poor, where we invite our homeless sibling inside, where we stand up with refugees, where we care about our trans friends who are being excluded, where we begin to stand up for black lives, where we say enough is enough. In my household, we won't be an anti-Semite. In my household, we're not going to say things that are Islamophobic. In my household, we're not going to talk bad about people that are different than us. The fire is burning, and that fire is a revival of justice. And I pray that we live into these beatitudes. I pray that that fire is stirred within us. And I pray that as this fire moves through us, that not one system of evil will stand. We have an eschatological hope and a hope of a future, of a coming kingdom, a kingdom of a beloved community. But it's not only future, but it's right now, it's at hand, it is inside of us. So we must prepare the way of the Lord. Until the beloved community comes on earth, as it is in heaven, let us keep that fire lit. Amen and amen and thank you.